have heaters. Um, we just need a bit more electricity. So um, we're, things are moving forward. We've uh, obviously come a long way since the day we moved into this building. But yeah, working with the city permit office, that's, um, that's something else. So we're doing everything they're asking us to do, but it would seem they're not, they're not in, a, in a terrible hurry to help us. So we're just, we're plugging away, but we will get there. And hopefully, yeah, before too long, we'll, we'll be able to upgrade our electric service, get our nice heaters on, and we'll be good. And just so you know, if you're a parent with a little one, and you're thinking like, this is dangerously cold for, for the little ones, that the cry room in the corner there, everyone wave at Miriam um, and little Charlie. That has been heated. We left a little space heater on overnight, so it's actually quite warm in that room. Um, but you're only allowed to go in there if you have a kid as cute as Charlie or, or Ezra or anyone else that I'm missing. Yeah, so there we go. Guys, let's go ahead and jump into God's word. We're going to go to John chapter 17 this morning, and we're going to continue with our theme, our sermon series, entitled Life Together. And my conviction, I hope our conviction, is that as a church community, this is not just a, a social club for like the spiritually inclined. Okay, we're not coming here because we're just bored on a Sunday morning and we want to get our little religious fix on. Um, we believe that God is doing something much, much uh, deeper and more significant than that. So when we come together as a church community on a Sunday morning or during the week or over coffee, whatever it might be, as we're trying to grow in our relationship with God and each other, we believe that God wants to do something incredibly um, deep in our relationships. That as a church community, there's something about the way that we love each other and relate to one another and Jesus that's meant to reflect something of the very heart of God himself to the world around us. So we're trying to figure out what does life together look like as the body of Christ, the family of God, working on our relationships, navigating through the complex things of life, um, which I think is especially relevant for this current year. It's been challenging. There's been one or two tense moments along the way. And so we want to figure that out. We want to grow and not just sort of write 2020 off as sort of a waste of a year. I believe that God has prepared us and God is absolutely at work in the world, in his church, and in our relationships. So John chapter 17 is where we're going to look at this morning. Um, this is... Oh gosh, if we just had a couple more hours together this morning, we would just read like from John chapter 13 to the end of the book, but we don't have that much time. So we're going to read just a couple of uh, sections out of John chapter 17. We'll actually start with the first three verses. John 17 verse 1. After Jesus said this, he had said many things to his disciples, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you have granted him authority over all people 
that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And he goes on to say some absolutely epic and and semi-cosmic things about this eternal life and knowing God and what that looks like in the context of the upcoming hours and days. And, And then he sort of picks up the thought once again in verse 20. And he says, in my prayer is not for them alone, meaning the disciples sitting in that room in that moment. My prayer is not for these alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That would be us. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them my glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, help us as we consider these words that you spoke then and I believe are speaking now. Would you give us open hearts and minds to to hear your voice to us, your church, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves with a deeply intimate kind of love. When Jesus prayed that his disciples, including us, that we would be one even as he is and was eternally one with his father, that we would experience his love as he received love from his father and begins to sort of like meld all these different onenesses together and these relationships and this eternal life that is in fact not just dying and going to heaven someday, but it's knowing God and not just knowing about him, but knowing him with a deep, personal sort of experiential kind of knowing and intimacy even though the word intimacy isn't there it is all there this is a kind of relationship that later on the bible compares to the sort of oneness that a a husband and a wife would experience together the kind of oneness that that a, a parent and their child would experience together the kind of oneness that that Jesus and his disciples, his friends, would experience together. On the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus, after having washed the feet of his disciples, just moments before this very passage, he says to them, as I have loved you, so you must love one another by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus' vision for us, his church, his disciples, is that we would experience life together in intimate relationship with God and one another. I want to talk about intimacy this morning. The kind of love that's 
experienced in relationship that is in some way like this sort of intimacy, this oneness that Jesus has prayed that his disciples, that we would experience, that the world would be able to look on and say, this, there's something supernatural about the way that you guys are relating with one another, this kind of love that you have received and are sharing. There's, there's something um, extraordinary about this sort of intimate love. How do we do this? This is the big question, right? How do we actually experience such an intimacy um, in our relationships, in our friendships, in our families, and in our church, in the church family? You know, we talk about uh, people who don't have houses to go home and and get warm in. Uh, Many of those same people, they don't really have healthy relationships. And I don't want to get too far into that because it's, it's above my pay grade, but I, I understand that one of the, the root causes oftentimes of, of a breakdown in families and, and what often results in homelessness is that there's, there's a lack of, of healthy relationship. There's a lack of family. I'd like to be the kind of church community that we don't just give them mac and cheese and send them on their way. But if they're in deeper need of relationship, community, someone who can actually love them, listen to them, invite them in to be a part of this thing God is doing here, that that we could be that kind of church family. Or that we could at least like work on it. That we could could have a vision for that and begin moving in that direction. Um, And whether you live in this neighborhood or not, to me it doesn't really matter. It'd be awesome if we just all lived on the block, we could just start a commune or a cult or, you know, heard that's kind of fun. Josh. Josh and Raya literally live just a couple blocks down the road. So they get the vision, they get the vision. We actually had a conversation before the service this morning about how cold it was in the room and someone had the brilliant idea of getting a bunch of GC Snuggies made up. You guys remember the Snuggie? It's like this blanket that you kind of wear. It's like a blanket hood. And I thought, what if we all wore green Grace City Snuggies every Sunday morning? Like if that's not the beginning of a cult, I don't know what it is. Maybe we'll just get beanies. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we love each other? How do we experience oneness with God and each other in a way that's, that's truly intimate? That's just beyond, you know, the pews. It's just beyond an hour on a Sunday morning. How do we do this? And I want to argue, and I believe that the scriptures would argue that vulnerability is necessary to experience truly intimate relationships. Jesus leads us down the path of vulnerability because in God's economy, in God's kingdom, the power is made perfect in weakness. When we can be weak in our relationships, 
when we can become vulnerable in the way we relate to one another, it's there that we begin to experience the power of God, the love of God, the kind of intimate relationship that I believe that Jesus um, wants to lead us into. The journey to intimacy is the journey to the cross. Which, by the way, if you are interested in following Jesus, then you are signing up for a journey to the cross. Always. In every aspect of life and relating to one another, Jesus continues to lead us to the end of ourself that we might be crucified with him and experience new life in him. And this is a one-time thing and a daily thing, which is why Jesus instructs us to take up our cross daily. Sometimes we have to be led back to our cross daily. A journey to intimacy, to vulnerability, is a journey to the cross, where we see the most powerful, wise, and secure being in the universe, God in the flesh, not picking up weapons to conquer, but overcoming evil through the ultimate act of sacrificial love, Jesus becomes vulnerable unto death on the cross. Vulnerability precedes intimacy and in our relationship with God and one another. How do we do this? If we go back to John chapter 17 and just keep reading, what happens next after this incredibly intimate moment that Jesus is sharing with his disciples, washing their feet, eating with them, praying for them. He gets up and he says, let's go for a walk. It's late at night, probably close to midnight if I were to imagine. They go down a little valley just outside the city gates called the Kidron Valley. I've actually walked through the valley myself around midnight. It's a small valley. It's a hillside riddled with old, ancient, ancient tombs. You would have had to go down through the Kidron Valley and up the other side to get to a little olive garden called the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives. And it's there that Jesus would often go and pray. And on this particular night, he brought his disciples with him. And they must have known that something was culminating. They must have been able to read by the tone and the expression and just the the. the the moment that, that this was a special night. And so Jesus takes his disciples with him and he asks them to remain with them and he even takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, Peter and the sons of Zebedee. And he says, I want you to come with me a little bit closer. I'm gonna go over here and pray and I want you to pray with me. Wait here and pray. I'm gonna be over there spilling my guts to my father because it's about to go down. In the darkest hour, in his darkest hour, Jesus invites his friends to stay close. This is the beginning of vulnerability. One of the greatest temptations I believe we'll ever face when feeling vulnerable will be to cover up. It will be to withdraw. It will be to disengage with those around us, especially those who are potentially the closest to us. We'll make up entire stories to tell ourselves in order to avoid that kind of vulnerability, that sort of exposure. Have you ever been there? 
I mean, you know how it is when you're having a really, really dark moment. That's typically not when you want to be around people who know you so well that they're going to look you in the eyes and say, what's really going on? And you know, sounding vulnerable, looking vulnerable is not the same thing necessarily as actually being vulnerable. I am really, really good at being, I mean, I can be like painfully honest with you if you were to ask me how I'm doing. If you know me, if you've ever asked me, how are you, how are you doing? I'll typically tell you exactly how I'm feeling even if you don't really actually want to know. You know how it is when you ask, hey, how you doing? And someone actually tells you, you're like, well, I wasn't, I didn't mean like, how are you actually doing? <laughs> I will tell you, I'll tell you how I'm, I'm actually doing. But you know, me being honest isn't necessarily the same thing as actually being vulnerable. It can be cathartic. It's not a bad thing but actually being vulnerable. It means allowing people who care about you, who want to care about you, being close enough for long enough to actually potentially do some serious harm. It requires risk. Like being actually vulnerable in relationship means you allow me to be close enough to you for long enough to possibly Cause some pain. Sound fun? This is what was happening in the garden. Jesus was inviting broken people into his breaking space. In Jesus' most, arguably, most vulnerable moment in his human life, he was inviting his friends, his disciples, to come close, to be with him. And wouldn't you know it? They didn't do a great job. He's just been betrayed. If we back up to the moment around the dinner table, Jesus, once again, he's just washed the feet of his disciples, an incredibly intimate, vulnerable moment in of itself. They're eating together, and he says, one of you at the table is going to betray me. And he knows exactly who, who it is. And he does, Judas does. He betrays him. He walks out in the moment. No one quite knows what's going on. John says that the disciples probably thought it had something to do with the money. Judas was the treasurer in the group, but Jesus knew he had been betrayed. Right after washing his disciples' feet, Judas leaves. Then Jesus foretells Peter's betrayal. He already knows what's going to come, even though Peter has insisted, I will never, ever, ever turn my back on you. And Peter has no idea what he's talking about. He's zealous, but he doesn't realize his weakness. Then while praying to Simone, Peter, James, and John, what do they do? They fall asleep. Have you ever needed someone to be with you in your darkest hour and you're like, please pray for me? Have you ever been asked to pray for someone later on? They're like giving you the update on their life and how things have been going and you immediately get convicted because you remember, I forgot to pray for you. Have you ever done that? 
which is why if you ever ask me to pray for you, just, just a heads up, I will probably stop and pray for you right then and there on the spot. It's a great way to like not to forget to pray for a friend. In the garden, while Jesus is spilling his guts, sweating blood, in deep, deep anguish, crying out to his father, if there's any way this moment might pass, if there's any other way to achieve what you've sent me to do without going to the cross, please, Father, I'm asking you, let your will be done. And he goes back to check on his friends and he finds them sleeping three times. They keep falling asleep. This, this makes being vulnerable a risky process. Knowing that to be intimate requires us to become vulnerable, but we all know that, I mean, unless you know someone I don't know, we are all just as broken as the person you're sitting next to. And even though there's no excuse for the way we might fail or, 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 or not follow through in the way we've committed to loving one another, it's, it's not justifiable, it's not okay, and yet it is a part of life, it's a part of the risky business of vulnerability. When we make the choice to get into intimate relationship with each other, leaning on one another, inviting brothers and sisters into our lives in our darkest hours saying, please, would you stand with me? I'm hurting. Can I trust you? Absolutely. I'll never betray you in a million years. And yet we do. We do. And we hurt each other. We fail each other. We say the wrong things and we don't show up even though we said we would. And it is called sin. And yet it's part of that journey to the cross. That journey of becoming intimate with each other. Risking vulnerability. You know, I was at a uh, pastor's cluster. They call them clusters. I wish they wouldn't call them clusters. This week. And... Um, it was just, uh, we're part of a family of churches called Every Nation. And uh, I guess you could think of it like a denomination, but it's much more relational than that. And uh, so every uh, six months or so, we will get together and it'll just be fellowship and we'll eat and we'll pray and we'll worship and we'll just, just encourage each other. So I did that this week. It was in Phoenix this time. And it had been over a year since we've been able, been able to gather for obvious reasons. And... Um, I'll never forget the first Every Nation Pastors Cluster that I got invited to just after Shirley and I and the kids came back from living in London for about nine years. Um, Seth Trimmer, who's the pastor of Grace City in Corvallis, which is our sending church, he invited me to come along. So I was like, yeah, whatever. So I go and, you know, we're all sitting around at these little tables maybe four or five of us to a table, and it's the point in the, the meeting where you're supposed to, like, tell these strangers how you're doing in life, like, what's going on, and how they can pray for you. And they weren't, like, total strangers, but I've been away for almost 10 years, like, living in England. And so now I'm back, and I'm supposed to just, like, jump into these relationships somehow, and it's supposed to, it's supposed to be this, like, intimate, vulnerable moment. 
Only it feels nothing like that. But here we are, sitting around this little table, and it's my turn to share. And at that point, that was what Shirley's sitting in the very back, what was it, like six years ago, almost? Yeah, something like that, five, six years ago. We were going through really, really hard times in our marriage. Like, it was just, that was rough. Maybe the roughest it had ever been. I don't know, it just felt rough. So in that moment, that was my, that was my chance to be vulnerable. And I told these guys, I need pray, prayer for my marriage. It's, it's, it's kind of falling apart. And, uh, you know, we've just come back from living overseas and I just, we're overwhelmed with the intensity of all the changes. You have three children. They've had to uproot their lives. And it just felt like our, our life was just, just shifting all over the place. So anyways, I said, my marriage is on the rocks. If you'd pray for me. And someone prayed a prayer. Didn't feel especially magical. But I appreciated the prayer. And then everyone was instructed to stand up. And we were going to sing songs to Jesus. We were going to worship. So I'm clo- I got my eyes closed, my hands raised. And I'm just worshiping with all my heart. Really trying to like get some sort of an emotional thing happening in that moment. Not feeling a whole lot. And then all of a sudden, I hear this voice right here. Like, just like right in my ear. And he says, if you're really serious about your marriage, I can get you help. It wasn't Jesus. It was a guy named Kevin York. Gotcha. Might, might as well have been Jesus. I believe that Jesus was answering my prayer like that. It's one of the guys at the table. Turns out he was like a, like a leader in every nation. He was like the guy who could actually like make the call and be like, dude, write the check. Get these, get these guys to professional marriage counseling. Honestly, guys, I think it saved our marriage. We ended up connecting with an absolutely incredible Christian counselor. They flew us out halfway across across the country to spend like several week-long sessions with this gentleman. Saved our marriage. To this day, we're still reaping the benefits of that that time that we spent with, uh, with Grady. But it was because, by the grace of God, I was vulnerable in a moment. Thank God for Seth for inviting me to this meeting. You never know what's going to happen at a meeting. Someone might actually ask you, hey, what do you need prayer for? And in that moment, you're going to look at that person in the eye and be like, you're human just like me. You're probably going to fail just like I've done. And now there's a, a moment where we can risk being vulnerable just like Jesus. Last point. Jesus could risk becoming vulnerable because his hope was beyond this life. There's a real tension here. I believe in safe spaces, in creating safe spaces. It's actually not healthy to just go around like sharing your personal business with like every random person who might just ask you your prayer request. I wouldn't recommend that. That, that, could, that, could, that could actually be very unwise. 
We need boundaries. We need to know that it is a safe person. It is a safe relationship. But the tension is we, we know that really I'm no better than you or vice versa. It's, it's not like I'm, I'm going to get it perfect every time. I'm going to say things that hurt you. And you're going to hurt me. But we can't just constantly use the excuse of they're not safe, they're not safe, they're not safe, they're not safe. You'll never experience a safe space if you're not willing to create a brave space. And the way we create brave spaces is like Jesus, he had his hope set someplace beyond this life. He knew that ultimately, no matter what happened in the garden, no matter what happened on the cross, his life, his destiny, his future, his eternity was secure in his father's hands. Into your hand, I commit myself. The dying words of Jesus. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, my soul is very sorrowful unto death. And if his hope was in his buddies or in the government or in the goodness of humanity, then his vulnerability would have been utterly tragic. He would have been betrayed. He would have died. He would have been crucified. He would have just been another martyr among millions in the history of martyrdom. And Jesus was more than that. His hope was anchored on the other side of the cross. There was a joy in the distance. And we can make the choice to walk in vulnerability because our hope is anchored in the life to come, the life that Jesus has secured for us. If you're afraid to become vulnerable, I would ask you to consider, where is your hope? To whom are you finding your security? We can grow in intimacy with one another because our hope is hidden in the very heart of God. As a community of people who are looking to follow Jesus, to experience this eternal life that he spoke of, there's nothing more risky than, than that. Loving each other like that, being loved like that, that's terrifying. Have you ever told someone you loved them for the first time? Ever done that? Can you remember that? If, if you're like, ah, I've never been in love. I told my mom, not quite the same thing. But eventually, even if you never end up getting married, which is fine, Jesus never got married. Most people at some point in life end up telling another human being, I love you. It's terrifying. Why? Because you're just, you're putting your heart out there. Like what if they don't say it back? Have you ever told someone you love them and they say something like, oh, that's nice. I have. It's the worst. It's like, oh, why did I say it? I can remember the first time I told Shirley I love her. She tricked me. I was asking her to teach me a phrase in Afrikaans. She's South African. 
Well, she speaks a bit of Afrikaans. I said, teach me to say something cool in Afrikaans. So she said, okay, and repeat these words. Ekecholif. I said, ooh, ekecholif, that sounds cool. It sounds Dutch. Ekecholif. And I said it a couple times, looked at her, said it again. Am I saying it right? Yeah, you're saying it just right. <laughs> I said, what am I saying? Hmm, just that you love me. Which was true, which was true. Being in a community where we're learning to give and receive love, oh, it's risky business. It works if we all know where our love truly comes from. If we're just simply looking to each other, we will deplete one another. Eventually, I will fall asleep on prayer duty. And I'll hurt you. And I'll have to repent. I'll have to ask for your forgiveness. And I'll have to begin to rebuild trust. That'll be a part of the process. In fact, we're going to talk about that next week. But we can keep doing it. We can keep coming back. Growing in our giving and receiving love. Because we have a hope that's in the distance. A joy that's beyond, just as Jesus suffered humiliation and brokenness and death on the cross because of the joy set before him, we can do this, guys, because there's a hope beyond this life. Micah, Nicole, will you guys join me back up front? Can we stand together, please? Everyone's like, oh. maybe we should just like, I don't know, get a little Pentecostal for like a month or something. If you're feeling the spirit, like do a lap around the room. <laughs> we're going to spend just a few minutes. We're going to sing. We're going to worship. And uh, this week, I want to invite you. If, if you're thinking about where is my hope? How secure am I feeling lately? How are my relationships doing? And you feel like, dude, I, I, need to, I, need, I need to get back to receiving the love that my heavenly father has for me. Like I need a heart full of his love so that I can, I can begin to engage in that risky business of vulnerability once again. Like I, I can have some of those conversations that I can begin to trust again, that I can pursue intimacy again. But you would say, man, this year is just, I just feel beat up on the inside. I'm with you, by the way. I said that to my leadership team a couple, couple weeks ago. They were feeding back to me. They said I sounded angry when I was preaching. And I said, yeah, I am actually. I feel like I've been like beat all year. And I had to repent. And I had to say, Lord Jesus, help me. And what I'm saying is this. If you want prayer this morning, I want to invite you just to come forward. You don't have to leave your seat, but sometimes there's something pretty powerful about just coming out of your place and coming up here. We have to figure out how we can pray for one another while respecting social distancing. 
Um, if you're like, look, at, I'm, I'm good with it, I'm fine, just don't get like up in my face, uh, then why don't you come down here and then maybe someone can come up uh, behind you, uh, put a hand on your shoulder respectfully, giving you some space and just pray for you. And if you say, man, I need that. I need that this morning. I need that going into the new year. I need my, my, my hope re-anchored in Jesus. We want to pray for you this morning. So don't, don't, don't be shy. Just come on up. If you prefer to just stay where you're at, that's fine too. Maybe put a hand up. But we, we just want to pray for you. We want to pray for each other whenever you're ready. God, thank you for this word that you've spoken to us. Um, yeah, thank you for the reminder that our hope needs to be anchored in you and needs to be set on you. Because um, it's so easy to get distracted and put it in things that fail us and fade away. Um, but you are unchanging and you are always steady and with us. Yeah, thank you for that, God. That's such an encouraging word. Um, yeah. Thank you for this time of worship and uh, this time where we can just express to you um, our thankfulness and our awe of you because you are greater than anything that we can even fathom.